Welcome to BioCentury This Week. I'm Jeff Cranmer, Executive Editor of BioCentury, and I'm joined by... Karen Tkach-Tesman, Senior Editor. Stephen Hansen, Associate Editor. Stephen joins us to give us the key takeaways from his third quarter financial markets preview. Plus, GSK goes neuro via a deal with Elector, and the distillery is on tap. BioCentury's monthly look at translational news is a staple of our content at BioCentury. Beginning with this week's edition, Karen will join us on the pod each month to give us her highlights from the latest translational insights featured on biocentury.com. Up first, our third quarter financial markets preview. Stephen has just wrapped weeks of phone calls with biopharma, biociders, and bankers to get their take on the state of play in the biotech market. Stephen, in your analysis, you found that biotech has finally pressed pause after a whirlwind year and a half of upsized IPOs, robust follow-ons, and company creation gone wild. The majority of pre-profit public companies you wrote have at least two years worth of cash on their balance sheets, suggesting the pressure to raise money is low. What do company executives who have recently raised money or are looking to fundraise need to know? Thanks, Jeff. Basically, the market peaked, as you said, it was a crazy ride through last year. Obviously, the pandemic sort of fueling a lot of this excitement and enthusiasm for biotech. And it had a remarkable ride up, I think, from the nadir of the market in March 2020 to its peak in February. I think the XBI was up 141% and the BioCentury 100 index was close to 90%. So a very strong run over that 11-month period. And so not surprisingly, things have, have cooled off finally from then. It's been largely sideways move since the beginning of February. And in conjunction with that, financing, sort of the pace of financings has really started to dry up. Not as much on IPOs, though. Those have really continued. We're seeing new companies still coming to, to the market and getting those deals done. A lot of that has to do with kind of the function of how IPOs work these days, because you've got such strong insider participation. Pretty much every deal is fully covered, fully paid for by insiders. They can get the deals done. It's just they work in the aftermarket, then it depends on what that demand is going to be. So it's not really surprising to see that IPOs have continued, but where we've really seen a big difference has been in follow-ons. I think there were 125 follow-ons in the first quarter. And I think the final tally for the second quarter was around 38 or 39. So that's really off. Yeah. So really dropping off. And that just picked my interest. And I just started asking some of these buy setters what they thought was driving this. And part of it is just a bit less demand, a bit less interest, partly from generalists. We're obviously in full kind of full swing of this recovery trade. So you've got lots of investors that have. Lots of other places to put their money. The S&P and the broader markets have been hitting all-time highs every day for the past several weeks. You've got lots of other places to invest. So that's taken some of the momentum out of biotech. The other thing that I thought was quite interesting is, as you mentioned, we did this sort of cash runway analysis where we looked at all the pre-profit biotech, so companies that aren't bringing in revenues and turning a profit. And we've done this several times over the years. And it was the first time that we've seen more than half of the companies have 
two years or more of cash, which is what investors have been thinking is what companies need. Yeah. What, one quote that jumped out at me as I was reading your piece, Stephen, was what RBC Capital's Phil Capin told you. And he said that one of the things that came out of the pandemic was a focus on overfunding to be able to handle unexpected periods of volatility. And he noted that crossover rounds are getting much bigger, IPO sizes are getting much bigger, and that's really to help companies weather the storm. Is that something you picked up on as well, Stephen? And is that a a trend that you expect to continue? Yeah, yeah. And a few of the buy-siders echoed that as well. One buy-sider mentioned that they now guide their companies to have three years of cash rather Mm -hmm. than the historical two. And I think it's also very clear in, just look at the IPOs from last year. We had 150 IPOs in 2020, and the average was 231 million per IPO, which is twice what it was the year before and three times what the average was in 2014. Clearly, there's some sort of, quote unquote, overfunding going on there. But I think that also explains why we've seen this drop off in follow-ons of late, because historically, you do an IPO, then you do a follow-on within the first 12 months. If you've raised $230 million or more, if you're doing these huge IPOs, you don't need to return to the markets. You just don't have the same cycle as I think we've had historically. What about M&A, Stephen? It seemed like it was very quiet last quarter. It has been. I don't have any hard numbers to point to this, but that was something that a lot of the investors were talking about was how M&A really just hadn't seen much activity. I think the last big billion dollar plus takeout we saw was Amgen's takeout of Five Prime in March. So since then, it's been very quiet. And even before that, there wasn't a lot happening. It's always difficult to say what's driving that. Like I said, the markets peaked in February and they're not too far off that peak yet. Farmers might be seeing valuations as being still pretty high, which mm-hmm. could be leading them to, to pause a bit. But that was the one thing that a lot of people were pointing to as something that could bring some momentum back to the sector since typically the summers are quite quiet when it comes to catalysts. And so yep. if you don't have a lot happening, m could be the thing to try and bring some people back. Well, speaking of catalysts, we closed the quarter with the breakthrough data from Intellia, which definitely had a lot of stocks on the up and up. Are there any catalysts like that that we're expecting in the second half that might bring investors back to biotech? We obviously had the big Biogen event Mm -hmm. and then the Intellia data. Anything else on your radar that you're looking out for this year? Nothing in the near term. And I think that was the quandary for some of these investors was that you had the big events of the summer were the Sage data that came and Mm -hmm. were mixed at best. The Adahelm approval, which obviously for Biogen was positive. And then the Vertex data, which was negative. And those have come and gone. And the Intellia was unexpected. And I think it was one of those good events where no one thought the data were going to be as good as they were. And so it helps to highlight how great something can be. And you obviously saw a lot of the gene editing stocks popped on that. But in the same breath, as a lot of the investors say now, the sector is so mature. It's hard to think that there actually could be one single event that could actually move things. Nowadays, you need to have a string of positive events really to pick people's interest again. We'll just have to wait and see. Yeah, you noted that a few stocks were up. We had Beam, we had CRISPR, we had Editas. Mm -hmm. There were really too many to name. So I uh, apologize if I've left anybody out there. I'd like to turn now to our distillery. For those listeners who may not know, what is the distillery? 
Karen, is it simply a party at JP Morgan every year or is there uh, something else? Well, I'm so glad you asked and I do miss that party very much. The distillery is a long running feature of BioCentury where we scan about 30 or so of the top biomedical journals for papers with immediate translational relevance. And we're looking with a focus on either new targets for an indication or targets that we've never seen come up in our database entirely, or new technologies that get at established targets. And the idea is that we're identifying potential licensing opportunities from academia or sometimes very early stage company activity. And in general, what each of these distillery items does is that it summarizes the most translationally relevant experiments from a given paper. So that'll include the patient sample data, disease modifying experiments or cell or animal models, and potentially biochemical data on target engagement. We really distilled down from the papers coming out, what are the most translationally relevant ones? And then within those papers, we distill down what are the most translationally relevant experiments and summarize that all in about 100 words and put out a cluster of these every month. And part of this is we include the names, institutions, and contact info of the corresponding authors, as well as patent and licensing information when it's available. Oftentimes, we'll find stealthy mucos this way, which then get added to our BCIQ database. What's on tap this month in the distillery, Karen? Well, we just put out summaries of 20 papers, but I'd like to highlight just two, but one in cancer and one in infectious diseases. And these are among our more heavily covered disease areas, especially these days, due to the flow of publications. But we're always looking to balance and include other indications as well. So other top ones we have are neurology, musculoskeletal diseases, autoimmunity, and cardiovascular disease also come up quite a lot. In cancer, we saw this really interesting cell study from Omar Abdel Wahab at Sloan Kettering and Robert Bradley at the Hutch in Seattle. And they were showing that inhibiting the RNA splicing factor, RBM39, or if you inhibited protein arginine methyltransferases, which modify RNA splicing factors, that if you did this, you could promote the expression of immunogenic tumor neoantigens via alternative splicing and get immune responses to tumors as a result. And the Hutch filed a patent application on this technology. Karen, don't I remember you writing something about alternative splicing? Yes. So in 2018, I wrote this story about how people were looking beyond just point mutations to find new types of neoantigens. And so neoantigens are these bits of proteins that are expressed uniquely by tumors that distinguish them as non-self and help drive immune responses to them. And we've been seeing companies making neoantigen vaccines or cell therapies target against neoantigens. But in this paper, it's about finding pharmacological approaches to drive in vivo expression of neoantigens in patient tumors to stoke endogenous immune responses. Another cool paper that stood out to me was about patient-derived MABs for malaria, which were going after the circumsporozyte protein, which is called CSP. So this is one of those things where they look at folks who have been exposed to the parasite, identify MABs antibodies from there. And they found one that targeted a conserved site at the end terminus, which then reduced parasite burden in mouse livers. And that was published in Science Translational Medicine by Joshua Tan and Peter Crompton at the NIH, who also filed a patent application. Resisting cracking wise about mouse livers. And this is really cool, Karen. And this is something we're going to do every month. We're going to get Karen on to tell you what is catching her eye 
in terms of translational research coming out of academia. What I'm curious about also, Karen, is what's new in terms of translational research coming out of companies? So our translation and brief section, which comes out every Friday, is where we cover that kind of news. And that can include papers, posters, or other press releases, other forms of preclinical communication that gets put out by either more established companies themselves or sometimes by academic groups that are very closely associated with them. One of the things that came out recently was Regeneron, building off the playbook used to identify PCSK9 as a target. They've got a lot of genomics work that they've been doing with collaborators and in health institutions like the Geisinger Health System. And they did this basically large whole exome sequencing project that identified GPR75 as a potential target in obesity. And this was a, a science study where they found that human GPR75 variants, they found variants that were associated with protection from obesity. And then they validated that association in mice fed a high fat. And another one we highlighted was around a nature communications paper from the academic group that had licensed its Affirmer Biologics technology to Avacta Group. And in this paper, they used that tech to find a previously unseen KRAS confirmer, which generated a large druggable pocket. And we all love druggable pockets on KRAS. I thought that was pretty neat. Excellent. And you can find this, our translation in brief section on biocentury.com. And for those who are fans of our archives, you can dig back and read some of the golden oldies in terms of translation. Let's turn now to our deal in focus. GSK's partnership announced last week with South San Francisco company Elector will give the pharma rights to two programs targeting sort one for neurodegenerative disorders. And it gives the biotech refreshed balance sheet as it prepares to advance clinical studies of the molecules, as well as bring three new programs into human trials next year. Stephen, tell us a bit about this biotech. I wasn't terribly familiar with them until last week, but I know you've done a little digging on them in the past. Yeah, so they're taking a different approach to maybe the more traditional neurodegeneration approaches that we've seen. They're going after neuroinflammation. A lot of it is, I believe, Karen, you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but I believe genetically defined targets that are going after orphan populations, looking to use specific mutations to identify a subset in these populations and really be quite targeted about it. Cool. And, and the target, Karen, is this uh, one to watch? Well, like Stephen was saying, they, Elector really bases their approach on using evidence from human genetic data to identify targets. And actually, one thing that I thought was pretty interesting is I happened to be having a conversation with GSK's head of digital R&D, that's not the official title, but who runs a big effort they're doing over there to build what's essentially a huge model of genetic interactions and genetic drivers of disease using natural language processing from data out there in the world, as well as a lot of functional genomics data that they generate themselves and data from their trials. One of the things that they told me was a big focus is on identifying new targets for their own programs, but they also use it to validate deals and put a microscope on things they're going after. And the people I talked to there said that using that model, they were able to get extra confidence on the genetic role of sortillin here in these diseases. 
Yeah, I'm just going to be curious to see whether this is a signal from GSK, because if you look at their pipeline, there's no indication that neuro was an area that they were going to be going into. They didn't even have anything in the clinic and their sort of opportunity-driven part of their pipeline. So I'll just be curious to see if this is a prescient of them moving in and doing more deals in this area or bringing more stuff through in their own pipeline, or if it's more of a one-off. I'd be curious to see, but it was uh, $700 million up front. It's a lot of money to outlay. Yeah, and I'm also curious to see the data that likely drove this decision. That is coming out at the end of the month, July 29th. Now, this deal does come as activist shareholder Elliott Advisors is pressing GSK to take steps to improve its performance. It also comes as GSK is in the process of separating its pharmaceuticals and consumer health units. Stephen, I know you've had your eye on Elliott Advisors way back since they did a little tango with Actelion back in the mm-hmm. day. From what you know about Elliott and what GSK has been up to lately, is this deal likely to satisfy Elliott or will they have to do a whole lot more? Well, you mentioned that Actelion one that got me a 24-hour trip to Basel and a stay in a very small hotel room. But this is a little closer to home here. Elliot are looking to have a, a renewed overlook of who's going to be in charge of managing these two companies going forward, the consumer health and the GSK pharmaceuticals businesses. They're looking to improve the near-term performance. So they're looking at buybacks. They're looking at lots of other things. I don't think deals, this one as well as like the ITO deal that GSK did a couple of weeks ago for an anti-tidget program, those sorts of deals aren't going to placate someone who is looking for a near-term boost or return. These are deals that are going to help GSK in 2025, 2026, not deals that have helped them in the next couple of years. Short of something more transformational or immediately accretive like that, hard to see how this is going to change Elliott's stance. All right. Well, I'm sure we're going to be hearing uh, quite a bit more out of Elliott in the days and weeks ahead. Um, On biocentury.com right now, we do have our Intellia content front and center. In case you missed it, we also published a story based on our conversation with Al Nylum CEO. Al Nylum shed about a billion dollars in market cap on Monday after the last Monday after the Intellia data came out. But what we heard from Al Nylum was that They've been prepared for this moment, and they've been building a pipeline strategy to counter the prospect. It will end up playing second fiddle to newer technology. So that's one that's well worth reading. We also had a trio of emerging company profiles, all from new Chinese companies. It was a good week to be Bing. On Cusp, Bing Yuan's new company launched to provide a bridge from innovation to outlicensing to multinationals. Bing Yuan is a former deal maker from Merck Co. and Seastone. We also heard from Bing Yao and his company, AirEvent. Bing Yao, of course, led Metamune spin out. Vela Bio through its $3 billion plus acquisition by Horizon Therapeutics. And 
his new company, Aravent, is using a reverse model compared with other cross-border companies. They're looking to source programs from China and other emerging biotech hubs. So certainly one to watch. The third company we profiled in our ECP series is Hangzhou Highlight. For that, I spoke to Chris Leung, who invented Sutent. And he is back with a company that's developing a TIC2 JAK1 inhibitor that he believes can deliver dual selectivity without the toxicity of more advanced programs. That company emerged last week with a $30 million Series B and B plus round led by Hong Kong Capital. That is about all we have time for this week. Do log on to biocentry.com to read the distillery items, Stephen's 3Q financial markets preview, our emerging company profiles, and much, much more. All of our podcasts are available on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, and Google. Kendall Square Orchestra provides the music for our podcast. The group connects science and technology professionals and other members of the greater Boston community to collaborate, innovate, and inspire through music while supporting causes related to healthcare and education.